0: Hey Richard Gottlieb, Chris Burn, How you doing? I'm doing fine. Uh, ready to play again? This is the Playground Podcast. I'm Chris Byrne with Richard Gottlieb and we are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy and marketing and media agency Chizcom. And today, we have a really cool guy here to talk to us, Brian Volkweiss, who is the CEO and founder of the Nacelle Company and Comedy Dynamics, and I don't think we've ever met, but he may have seen me because I was featured in one of his uh, series, The Toys That Made Us, talking about some of the toys. I had a wonderful day with your uh, crew in my office talking about that. But Brian, let's start out by telling us a little bit about you and how you got to where you are, and then we'll jump into your newest documentary.
1: Uh, I'm from Queens, New York. Uh, I got out to L.A. 22 years ago. Uh, I started off as a, as a manager. I, I represented uh, almost exclusively stand-up comedians. I did that for about 10 years and as I was doing that I started producing stand-up specials at first for my clients then for non-clients and we just built a business out of that and then as we were doing that we were starting to sell TV shows 3 years ago the toys that made us came out which by the way I uh, took 7 years to sell uh, and then a year to make Not surprised. We changed our business almost overnight. So uh, we went from being almost exclusively a comedy company to being a comedy and pop culture company. So I'd say at this point, almost half of what we're doing is pop culture related uh, and not stand up.
2: So I'm just interested and we're going to get into your latest work, but When you do a documentary, uh, how does that work? I mean, do you come up with the concept? Uh, Do you do a few practice, uh, you trial interviews? I mean, how does one go about
1: coming up with the idea to 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 do a documentary? So the idea can come from anywhere. Right now, we're developing a show that a friend of mine for forty years made a comment on Facebook that triggered an idea for a show. I had just bought a flag, you know, the GI Joe aircraft carrier, and my friend commented, uh, do you need an intervention? So that, that, just that question triggered an idea for a show. I was reading the LA Times and like El Chapo, when he was a lot in power, had a zoo, and he had hippos, and those hippos have uh, multiplied, and now Columbia, 40 years later, has a terrible hippo problem. <laughs> that, that was an idea for a show. That sounds like a good problem. So it, the ideas can come from anywhere. Then what we usually do now is we always make a deck, and that's a 10- to 50-page document. We show what the show's about, why we think we should do the show. And then we break down like eight to 10 episodes. And then we show how we could do 50 to hundred episodes if it's picked up. And then you set up between five and 12 meetings and you just pitch. As far as I can tell, <laughs> before the pitch even starts for the most part, They know if they want to buy the show or not. So you just and what I've also learned is the pitch itself is not as important as the Q&A after the pitch, because that's what where I have found we usually get the sale is when they're asking questions and then we hope we get the sale. You find toys are particularly evocative to selling shows or to my heart? Oh, both. Uh, To selling shows, uh, no, like I told you, it took seven years to sell toys that made us. You may find it shocking. Not everybody has a room like the one that I'm in. When I'm pitching shows to sell, you know, I'm dealing with 30, 40, 50 and 60 year old people. If I had to imagine deep down, they find it very strange that I collect like this. So no, it's not easy to sell shows about toys. I'll be honest. Before Toys That Made Us, I made a fair amount of shows because I just had to sell shows to keep my company, the lights on and all that. Now we're very blessed. I only develop shows that I'm excited about. It seems to be easier to do a good job when you're passionate yeah. uh, than not.
0: And I know you're passionate about toys. Our listeners can't see the room you're in, but you have probably upwards of 2,000 toys that you've collected. and and I'm seeing some favorites behind you
1: for a year or two I was telling people in interviews and everything I have about 2000 toys my daughter comes in one day and she's like daddy she's 6 years old she's like daddy let's count your toys <laughs> so we got to about 800 we got to about 120 when she got bored and left and I'm like you know I'm gonna. I'm. I'm actually curious now. I'm gonna count them over two thousand.
0: So you come by this naturally, and your latest project is one that that we are really excited to talk to you about. So we know you come by your love for toys naturally, and we want to talk to you about your new series called "A Toy Store for You." And this is something that's near and dear to Richards in my heart because. We are very interested in the smaller toy stores, but you guys have gone all over the world, you've gone all over the US, you've found some weird and wacky stuff, and you've done it in a unique way with self-taken iPhone footage and more. Tell us a little bit about this series and how you got into it and and how it was doing it.
1: I was, uh, it was uh, March of 2020, and uh, I was in one of my local toy stores, uh, vintage toy stores, Black Cat Collectibles, and I was talking to Kyle, the owner, and, um, you know, we knew a quarantine like I, that was like a Tuesday. And we knew on Friday a quarantine was starting. And I said to him, I go, well, what happens once the quarantine starts? And, he, you know, he's like, well, I don't really know because nobody alive has been through a quarantine. But if I had to guess, my income goes down to zero, yet my expenses don't go down at all. So that conversation got me thinking like. What can my company do to help? We're a production company with the distribution arm. That's probably a good way to start. So I called Billy Galaxy, who owns a store in Portland, Oregon, named, uh, believe it or not, Billy Galaxy Toys or Billy Galaxy Toys and Collectibles or Billy Galaxy Toys Collectibles and Comics or something. Very complicated name. Uh, but it's in Portland and the owner's name is Billy. And I said to Billy, and I'd worked with Billy before. I'm personal friends with Billy. And I said to go, I go, let me ask you a question. You own a toy store in a pandemic. If I sent you 20 things, like a bullet point list of shots and interviews I needed, would you do that? And then we'll edit it together. We'll do the writing. We'll do the legal work. We'll do the music. We'll do the color correction, blah, blah, blah. But would you shoot it yourself and send me the footage? He immediately said yes. So once he said yes, then we, for season three of The Toys That Made Us, we had done a worldwide premiere party with toy stores all over the world. So we already had this list of toy stores. So we emailed that list, which I think was 30 stores, 20 said yes, and then we put out a press release. So at this point, now we knew we could do it. Like we had at least 20 stores, 21 stores. So we sent out a press release. We stopped taking new stores at 50. We're intending to do 50 episodes. Might take us 89 years, (laughs) but our intention is to do uh, 50 stores. And basically what happens is the stores send us the footage. We edit it. We realize what we have and don't have. We tell the stores, would you mind doing this? Would you mind doing that? They send us more footage. And that's how we shoot it. And then, you know, we distribute them five at a time and season one and two are out. Season two came out Christmas Day. We are hoping this is not a guarantee, uh, but we are hoping season three will come out in late May. Uh, And I'm I'm hoping to have at least two, maybe three seasons come out uh, in twenty one.
0: What is it about the stores that you guys have focused on that you think is particularly wonderful and and engaging and makes good TV?
1: It's changed. So in season one, I really tried to show how COVID was affecting the stores. We got a lot of negative reaction to that. And the gist of the reaction was, hey, I'm already depressed enough. Uh, I was excited to see a show about toys and it was about COVID. So season two, I shifted it quite a bit. So I would say season one was like 55% about the store, 45% about how the store was affected by COVID. Season two was probably 80% about the toys, 20% about how the store was affected by COVID. So we did shift and season three will probably be 85 to 90% about the stores and toys, and 10% about COVID. By the time we're done, I mean, COVID, God willing, will be long over. So it, it makes sense to do that as well. All of these stores have a unique reason for existing. One thing I did not know, if there is any unifying thing to the stores, I would say the 50 stores we're doing, at least a fifth, maybe close to a quarter, were founded by musicians who kind of aged out and needed a job to raise a family. And then it was always very interesting. Every city has a different, you know, it's like every toy store, whatever city you're in, kind of has different stuff. So it was always interesting to me to see how these stores got their merchandise And then of course, it's very cool to zero in every episode, we do a highlight of five toys that the owner is excited about. Um, So uh, it's just crazy some of the toys that these people have. Was there any commonalities that you could see in those who were prospering? Because we were dealing with all these stores simultaneously in March, we were able to see who had like no online business, who had some online business and who had a great online business. And we were able to watch what happened. And basically what I would tell you is I'd say 85% of the stores really doubled down and expanded and improved their online capabilities, especially, I mean, I'd say half the stores had no online capability. Like they had a website, so they existed on the internet, but they really didn't do anything with it. Black Cat Collectibles, the story I was telling you about that kind of inspired this whole thing. I don't think they did any online business that I'm aware of, or it was minimal before the pandemic. And they just moved to a bigger location. So, and I remember, like I said, Kyle was the guy in March who told me he thought he was going out of business. Cut to November, he's moving into a bigger store that was powered by online sales. You know, we had a very cool thing happen last weekend where one of my colleagues, he's on some, it's not eBay, but it's something like that. And he met, he, he traded toys with some guy. And I guess you meet in a parking lot and you trade whatever you're trading. It doesn't have to be toys. It could be, I don't know, fire extinguishers, whatever. Um, so basically he shows up. He doesn't know the guy at all. And he's wearing a -a bric-a-brac t-shirt from Chicago. And uh, he's like, oh, my God, I'm from Chicago. That's my favorite store. Are you from Chicago? And the guy's like, no, I'm from Vermont. (laughs) My my colleague's like, oh, how'd you get the shirt? And he's like, well, I watched this show called A Toy Store Near You, and they're trying to help raise money for the stores. So I bought one of their t-shirts, not knowing that my colleague worked at the company that makes the show. So Mm -hmm. that... That store bric-a-brac in Chicago, again, just trying to be apples to apples and answer your question. I think they had a, I think they had an online business, but it was like an afterthought. Maybe right. I hope they don't right. get mad at me for saying that. I'm sorry if I'm wrong, guys. Now it's keeping the lights on, and then right. some. So, Brian, of all
0: of the episodes you've filmed and all of the toy stores you've gotten to visit virtually. Do you have a favorite story that came out of one of them?
1: I I have a favorite story, but I, I hate to tell you this, I'm gonna cheat a little bit. It, it, it comes out of almost all of them. I literally will sit here and I'll be watching a cut and I'll be like, ooh, I like that. I want that. <laughs> and then I'll literally text the owners and be like, hey, is uh, is that E.T. Fingerlight still available? Uh, <laughs> Hey, so like, if you watch the Billy Galaxy episode, there's a whole thing in it about the real Japanese Takara version of the gun that became Megatron. That gun is two feet that way. <laughs> uh, finger light is that way. Uh, from thirteen thirteen in uh, Lawrence Kansas, uh, I have the He-Man uh, Mosquito. So I, I've been uh, it's it's been helping my collection uh, producing this show. And and by the way, some of the things I've been buying, literally the stores start getting like, do you still have that? Do you still have that? And I'm sure they want to answer, no, the idiot producer stole it. Or I mean, (laughs) I paid for it. I paid for it. I paid for it. But anyway. So how is the fundraising going? The money's coming in. This distribution model we're using, it's the reverse of the typical financial model. Usually, You get a lot of money in the beginning and then it trickles down. This we call, it's called a hybrid distribution system. So this starts slow and gets bigger and bigger and bigger and then it sort of never turns off. So, cause it, it, the money comes in by view. It's also getting exposure for the stores, so between the two of them, hopefully we're making a difference. Tell everybody, just uh, for those who aren't aware, where they can find your show. Season one, and this is an exaggeration, but it's a pretty accurate way to describe it. Season one is everywhere but Netflix and like Hulu. Season two right now is only on Amazon. And I'm not supposed to say this, but in about two months, it'll be everywhere.
0: COVID has transformed a lot of business models and a lot of ways people are doing things. And you responded with this model of producing where the people created the footage and and sent it to you. Do you think that that's going to have a long-term impact on some of your production moving forward? Is it going to be a hybrid? Are you going to you ready to get out on the road again?
1: You you nailed it. You nailed it. It's going to be a hybrid. So we, uh, you know, we do this show called Movies That Made Us. That's also on Netflix. We just had two episodes come out, um, Elf and a Nightmare Before Christmas both of those episodes, I directed the whole thing from this room. Literally didn't leave this room. Everything was done with remote camera kits that we built in March and April. We have a full-time kit now in London. So absolutely, we're doing a series right now about the 55th anniversary of Star Trek. All of that probably will be shot with these remote kits. So Yes, but to your point, and it's so good you noticed that, it will be hybrid. And yes, don't tell my family this, but I I am looking forward to getting back on the road. (laughs) So, Brian, we're going to ask
0: you the question that we ask all our guests on the Playground podcast. Will you tell us a secret?
1: So, I'm going to tell you a secret. This is the kind of thing where when this is over, you guys are going to say to each other, I'm actually very surprised he admitted that while the conversation was being recorded. But I want to give you a truthful answer. I want to give you a good answer. Let me preface it by saying the band, because this could come out wrong if I don't preface it by saying the band. I love Bush. I have seen Bush in concert nine times. I have paid money to shake Gavin Rossdale's hand. Why do I love Bush so much? Couldn't tell you. <laughs> I, I, I am aware of the fact that most people consider them to be a, a footnote on 90s rock or whatever. But my three favorite group, I, I love Tina Turner, I love Johnny Cash, and I love Gavin Rossdale. And I am fully aware that Gavin Rossdale should not be on the same shelf with Tina Turner and Johnny Cash. I am aware of that. That said, I love Bush and I love Gavin Rossdale. Well, that's wow. great.
0: I, I love that because that really speaks to the passion and the interest that has motivated not just your musical taste, but also your career and what you're doing and what you're putting out there for people and that people get a chance to share. Brian Volk founder and CEO of the Nacelle Company. And the producer and genius behind the series, A Toy Store Near You. You can see the second season on Amazon. And as he told us earlier, you can see the first season everywhere. We're looking forward to the third season and maybe the fourth and fifth. Brian, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. I appreciate your time. This was fun. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap where Richard and I toss around some ideas that are top of mind in the toy industry right now. And of course, as we come into the first full year of selling virtually, retailing is top of mind. And Richard, you just did a survey about the 400 pound elephant in the room, Amazon. Tell me a little bit about
2: that. Of course, it's Amazon has become hugely important to the toy industry and, um, I began to wonder, well, how do people feel about doing business with Amazon? Is it, is it an enjoyable process? And so the question I asked was this, in doing business with Amazon, do you find it to be harder than bricks and mortar, easier than bricks and mortar, or no different than bricks and mortar? And I found that 42% said it was harder, and only 15% said it was easier with 12% saying it was no different. The, the remainder, it was they didn't do business with Amazon, those who responded. So a lot of folks are not enjoying it. The question became, why? And so you and I have both kind of dug into this question with other folks in the industry. And one of the things I found, Chris, was that Amazon is now considered to be maybe the least profitable, retailer to do business
0: with right there is a lot of pressure on pricing there's a lot of concern about payment there's a lot of concern about being listed they have essentially shifted a lot of the onus for driving the product through to the manufacturers in terms of video online in terms of helping people find it it's a double-edged sword because on one side People want to be on Amazon because that's where people are shopping. On the other side, it's very difficult to do business with them, to get paid in a timely way. And according to some of the manufacturers I've talked to, with their payment schedule, they're essentially a consignment shop. And that's very frustrating.
2: Chris, I'm hearing that the dating terms are looking for now. It has been 60 days. They're they're trying to get 90. And no matter what they're getting, they're, they're 30 days late. Another issue that came up, Chris, was reorder policy that they they really, Amazon looks for just-in-time fulfillment. So orders are, are pretty much on a weekly basis, as opposed to, say, Walmart, which buys in four- to eight-week increments. And as a result, there's a lot of out-of-stocks. So there's a lot of unhappiness there. And, and, and an insight someone gave me, and I thought it was very interesting, that at one time, Amazon considered the toys to be a traffic driver for the website. But they changed their outlook, and they now consider toys to be a profit center. And that's one of the reasons why we're seeing these changes. That's why I thought it was really interesting, and I wasn't aware of this, that Amazon will match other people's prices. And if there's too much price competition on a product, they will um, not delist the product, but they will remove it temporarily so that they don't have to compete for a price on that particular product, and then they'll reinstate it once pricing stabilizes.
0: The just-in-time delivery is not a new concept. I think that we first saw that in, in, with Toys R Us back in the 80s. It's a concept that came from Japan and was really designed around uh, Toyota. But it still shifts a lot of the risk to the manufacturers because they have to try to decide if they are going to produce enough product, even if they don't have orders. It's a much more risky way of doing business when it comes to the manufacturers because they don't really know how to allocate resources or inventory.
2: Well, at this point, Amazon is an overwhelming force. On the internet, in terms of uh, e commerce sales for the toy industry, I am hearing that Target.com is getting stronger, uh, Walmart.com is getting stronger. We really need that. Chris, when I, when I look at Amazon, what, what comes to mind, and, and not to the degree, but it reminds me a little bit of our history books. When we read about Standard Oil under the Rockefellers back in the first part of the 20th century, and they had a monopoly on on oil and gas to the point that the government stepped in and broke standard oil up. Now, I'm not suggesting Amazon should be broken up, nor am I suggesting that any of the tech companies who we, we do have some some pretty near monopolies right now between Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter, et cetera, but we do. And, and uh, I understand from you, Chris, there's some talk in Congress about Uh, taking a look at some of these companies.
0: Absolutely. Amy Klobuchar has been very active in talking about that right now. And there was recently a report from the American Economic Liberties Project, which is an anti-monopoly group. And they really have said that these tech giants are monopolistic. So whether or not that goes anywhere, it's certainly a topic of conversation right now. And I think people are concerned. And I do think that, if we see the kinds of pressure on the toy industry that makes competition hard or difficult, that's only bolsters the argument that perhaps this should be looked at a little bit more
2: seriously. Just to bring it full circle, the game of Monopoly, <laughs> <laughs> which came out really during the Depression, reflected the sentiment at the time about concerns about monopolistic practices in business. It's almost like something uh, from 100 years ago we're starting to see again, uh, which which typically happens with uh, new technology.
0: And the reality is, for now at least, that people are going to keep doing business with Amazon. They're going to be trying to drive people there. It's what we need to do right now. And the question is, will there be an opportunity for other companies to actually rise up and enhance their online sales. I've been really impressed by what Walmart's done in the past couple of years, not only in terms of their site and in what they've done in terms of inventory, but also in terms of attracting people who might have been resistant to buying online. So there are some indications that there will be more of a competitive environment. And I think that people... Confronting an antitrust question, will will actually address that in as a defense. So,
2: Chris, you want to play some Monopoly later?
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. But you know what I'm going to do before I play Monopoly? I'm going to set a Google alert so I can shop around for the best price for that game and the best delivery. We thank you for stopping by here. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host, Richard Gottlieb. And we are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy and marketing and media agency, Chiscom.
2: And we'll see you next time.